Welcome to episode 374 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Will, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Jeff. Hello, Rainbow Romance Reader. It's so great to have you here for our book discussion. This is the spring Big Gay Fiction Book Club episode, and our pick is the second chance fake dating story that takes place over one wild wedding weekend. We're going to be talking about I'm So Not Over You by Kosoko Jackson. Now make sure you stick around after our discussion. We are pleased to bring you an excerpt from the audiobook of I'm So Not Over You with narration from Timothy Bell Reese. You are not going to want to miss that. So before we jump into what this book is all about, what were your initial impressions when I first said that this was the book we were going to be reading? I was excited. First of all, because I absolutely adore the cover of the book. The cover sold so much of it to me before I even read the blurb. It's an illustrated cover. You've got these two guys looking at each other, and it's a mix of I love you, but I'm also a little bit hesitant to go forward. (laughs) There's a lot being said in this cover, and I really, really love it. Plus, I mean, the title itself and the way that it's presented on the cover itself, the word not is in red, and the rest of the title is in white. If you look at it online, the not is inside of parentheses. So there's a lot going on in terms of the second chance sort of stuff that's going to spread out here because it's like, I really want to be over you, but I'm really not over you. And then there was the promise of a zillion pop culture references, which honestly, I adored. Our lead character, Kean, oh, he is so into pop culture. This book drips in pop culture references. And every time I kind of came across one, I was like, I know that, I know that. And I'm sure there are ones in here I have no clue about. So yeah, I was excited to do this book. And Kosoko also has been on my radar a lot, not just for this book, but he also writes YA. He's kind of doing it all. And yeah, I'm really into that. So I was excited to get to talk about this one. And then of course I read it. I'm like, oh my God, I just love this thing. What led you to picking this book, I guess, is the flip side of the question you just asked me. Well, like you said, with the cover and the blurb, I thought it was a no-brainer. It's a jam-packed, trope-tastic rom-com that I just couldn't say no to. And one last thing before we dive in. The main character of the book is Kyan, spelled K-I-A-N. But I listened to the audiobook, and the narrator spends the entire story saying it, Kian. Which is where I got my pronunciation just a moment ago. So in our discussion, we may switch back and forth between pronunciations. And it's not because we're stupid. We're just confused. (laughs) We could just call him K, although he's not our boyfriend. So we may not have permission to do that. Oh, yeah. That's the whole thing of the story. We'll get to that in a second. Okay, let's talk about I'm so not over you. At the beginning of the story, journalism student Kean is waiting anxiously at a Boston coffee shop. His ex-boyfriend Hudson, who's been his ex for about three months, has asked to meet. When Hudson shows up looking too perfect for words in that very Hudson kind of way, he doesn't beat around the bush. Will Kean be his boyfriend again? Though still miffed at getting dumped in the first place, he is more than willing to get back together with Hudson until he specifies that they'll only be together for three days tops. There's so much for me to unpack here. First of all, I love Kosoko's use of description. We know so much, particularly about Hudson right here in the way that Kean describes meeting up with his ex. Kean says there's two perfect descriptors that come to mind, whiskey and a steel string guitar. Whiskey because his voice is as smooth as the alcohol his family famously distills and markets, and a guitar because not only is he great at playing it, but there's a soft, alluring twang to his voice that makes the sirens in the Odyssey sound like piss-poor contestants on the X Factor. (laughs) Little bit of pop culture, amazing description. I had no issue after that understanding really who Hudson was already just from that little bit. And Hudson's also very direct because he sits down and he's very simply like, I called you here because I want you to be my boyfriend after all this time that they've spent apart. We also know from this early moment that Kean is still very much in love with Hudson. So, of course, he's going to agree to whatever's about to happen, if only to be with this guy for a little bit longer. We'll see as we go on that Kean is very complicated. He wants this, but he doesn't want it. And the back and forth is part of what makes this kind of rom-com gold in so many ways, because he knows what he wants, but then he doesn't really want to want what he wants. (laughs) It's very back and forth for him. 
I felt for him a little bit because you could just imagine all the collisions happening in his brain as he kind of parsed out some of what was going on as the story went on. So it's a great introduction to kind of get us into the meat of the story. This is apropos of nothing, but when you mentioned Kosoko's descriptive powers, I was wondering if we knew what Hudson smells like. (laughs) And the only reason I bring this up is because on the podcast, Faded Mates, Sarah McLean and her co-host are fond of pointing out the way male characters smell in romance. At some point in the book, the heroine is always going to describe what the hero smells like. It's almost always soap or fresh cut grass or something outdoorsy and manly. It's almost always like... Like woodsiness. Pine, I, some, yeah. Yes, woodsiness, quote unquote, which is a very generalized pine fresh scent. I don't know. <laughs> if it comes up in my notes, which it might, just like that initial thing did, I will point it out. But I'm pretty sure at some point there is reference to him smelling like the body wash that he uses, <laughs> which is also a very common descriptor, regardless of what that body wash is, because there's a whole slew of different varieties of male body washes out there. At, at some point, almost every male character, especially I feel like I see it a lot lately, and maybe it's triggered because of the Faded Mates episode, somebody's always throwing like the body wash that they use. I don't know. It is a thing, though. So a day later at a local bar, Kian is recounting the encounter with his brother Jamal, his best friend Divya, and some friends. It seems that Hudson's parents are coming into town, but he never told them about breaking up with Kian. Hence the pretend boyfriend request which is when he threw his iced coffee in Hudson's face. And while his friends discuss the ramifications of having any kind of friendship with someone who's an ex, Kean heads to the bar to get the table some drinks. But the round has been paid for by a stupidly handsome and rich ex who can't seem to take no for an answer. Who guess what? Smells like pine. I have it right here now Uh that I've moved on. I knew it was coming. (laughs) Now that I've moved on to this chapter's notes. I really like Hudson's friends, and really quickly we get a feeling for their dynamic, especially with Divya and Kian's brother Jamal. They've each got a slightly different take on Kian's failed relationship with Hudson, and I thought it was funny because they are equal parts giving him a hard time, but also trying to be supportive. Mm -hmm. In that very loving, we've been friends for a million years kind of way. And I will tell you when you're being stupid. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I love Divya. I would love to understand more of her world. I would love a book featuring her and what she gets up to. She's an attorney who also works occasionally at the bar just as like a a way to decompress and a way to do something different. And so often her take on the world, I just love when she crops up here. Yeah, Kasoko, if you could give her, I don't know, a short story, a book, come up with something for her to do that we can see more of her, I would be very into that. (laughs) Everybody deserves a friend like Divya, especially when they're going through this kind of thing. Divya and Jamal are also an interesting counterpoint to Kian. They at least appear to have their life together, whereas Kian is really still kind of adrift trying to get the job that would essentially, in his mind, set his life on the right course. So it's an interesting dynamic there as well, because they're also looking out for him to kind of move into the next phase of his life, which for them does not include going backwards to Hudson. So Hudson, who we know is rich and beautiful and smells like pine, he apologizes to Kian for springing the request on him, and he explains that he could really use his help. Though he is practically perfect in every conceivable way, To Hudson's family, he's the screw-up. You see, he rejected going into the family business, a billion-dollar brewing and distilling empire, and he gave all that up to get a degree in psychology. He's under the impression that they really liked Kian, and he could use his supportive presence at the upcoming family dinner. In exchange, Hudson is willing to make an introduction for Kian to the head of Spotlight, a website Kian has been trying to get a journalism fellowship for. Essentially, the deal is going to be a favor for a favor. So, Kian says yes. As we learn more about Hudson's family, keeping to our pop culture references that we love here so much, I could easily see this book becoming an entire Tyler Perry series. The haves and have-nots come to mind. I could just see the entire Rivers empire presented this way. It's also very interesting to me that while they perceive Hudson as the screw-up, 
that they like Kean so much because Kean does not have his life together. And my impression is, even if we go back in the past to when they were together, he may not have had his life together back then either. <laughs> so I don't understand why they like Kean so much, given the, the dynamics in that family, but good for him for making a good impression. We also get a lot more of Kean in this chapter to understand what makes him tick. He describes how he was trying to avoid how horrible he felt by concentrating on the things that he likes. And this is his list. The introduction to Star Trek The Next Generation and how Star Trek Discovery pays homage to it. Katie Couric's journalistic voice and how close I am to perfecting it. How Hudson's Southern accent becomes more prominent when he's angry. His secret love for Marvel movies. The way his toes curl when I dot, 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 kind of lets that trail off because... <laughs> His list of things that he likes immediately pivoted over to what he likes about Hudson. So we see the dilemma that he's in as he's now casting himself into this fake boyfriend role. I will say that I also like how Kasoko works in various bits of commentary. Like we get this here also as they're talking about books. Books also say that Jesus was white, but he's from Bethlehem, not Sweden. I'm not sure we can trust books written by white people to give black people credit for anything. I love that this commentary keeps rolling out and that things get put through that lens because it just lends this book so much authenticity that I just kept really enjoying seeing that woven in, even from this very early point in the book. The next day, Hudson takes Kean on a ridiculously spendy shopping spree. Can you just imagine if this was a movie, the montage sequence we would have had while they shopped for clothing? <laughs> I know. They get him a whole new wardrobe a la a traditional rom-com fashion montage. And after spending several thousand on new looks that Hudson insists are needed if his parents are going to accept them as a couple, Kean points out the difference between acceptance and actual support. Now, it seems this is a very old argument between them, and Hudson doesn't appreciate Kean pointing out the less than perfect dynamic he has with his family, which leads to a big old fight, and Hudson calls off the dinner and their deal. And as we get first looks at things, this one was actually the first look at how fiery these two can be when they get mad at each other. Sparks can really fly between these two, and they both dig in rather deeply into what they will and will not do once they get into these positions. I felt bad for anybody who's around them when these fights go down, because they are they would both be the kind of fight that you can't take your eyes off of, but that you also want to scurry away from to not get caught up in the whirlwind of it. Over coffee, Keon replays the scene for Jamal, who is ever the far more practical younger sibling. Like I said, he's got his life together, as opposed to his brother. And he makes sure Keon knows he's in the wrong. And if he truly cares about it, it's up to him to make things right with Hudson. Later that night, Divya drives Keon to the restaurant for the meeting with Hudson and his parents. She aggressively reminds him how stupid this all is, especially since Keon still isn't over the breakup with Mr. Wealthy, Good-Looking, Fancy Pants. But Kean is determined to make good on this deal. Hudson can impress his parents, and Kean will get his introduction, and all will be good. Divya and Jamal will not take Kean's shit at all, and they will call him on it. They were very, very blunt, saying that he fucked up because he went after the family, and that's just what you don't do. As Jamal tells Kean, look, you fucked up, you did what you always do, go overboard with your words. And this is something that Kean does a lot. Jamal goes on to say, my point is, you are a lot. Just a lot with your words. Sometimes they get you in trouble. Sometimes they help you. But we both know what I'm going to say. And what Jamal is saying is actions speak louder than words. So that's how Kian has to go about fixing what he has done here. So dinner alternates between tense exchanges between Kian and Hudson's dad and banal pleasantries, chatting with Hudson's mom while Hudson himself seems to want to be any other place than where he currently is. When the evening finally ends, Hudson and Kean say goodbye to Mom at the valet stand. And she goes on and on about Hudson finally finding someone so special. And she pulls some invitations out to a cousin's wedding, inviting both Hudson and Kean down to Georgia next weekend. Now, of course, this was not part of the plan. And Kean expects Hudson to flatly reject the offer. Shockingly, he says yes they would be happy to attend. Kian is honestly flabbergasted. They are not in a relationship. What was Hudson thinking? 
They get into a fight in their Uber. <laughs> poor dredging, Uber driver. <laughs> I know, poor, poor driver. Dredging up complicated feelings from their time together. Because, yeah, Kian is just not quite over it, just like Divya said. But he is over this whole current situation. He has the Uber driver pull over, and he walks away. This is a fiery, fiery bit of chapters here, because the dinner is something to behold. And it's also really where I started to cheer for Kian quite a bit. He doesn't take crap from Hudson's parents. There's a moment where Hudson's dad says, Rum from, you say yes, sir, to your elders and those you're trying to impress. And then Kian fires back. Strange, my mom taught me respect is something earned, not given just because you were born earlier than me. It's like, dude, that's a lot for family dinner <laughs> to be saying right there. But also... Good for you for standing your ground a little bit as well. Of course, this doesn't make Hudson's evening any easier, but Kean does stand his ground. And, oh boy, talk about interesting, just flinging out those invitations there. I don't know how Hudson could necessarily keep quiet that this was going to turn into coming down to Atlanta for a wedding, unless he just knew that Kean would have balked at that right off. I don't know if that was something Hudson either didn't know or he was just keeping it under his hat because dinner's one thing. Traveling in a big family wedding is completely another in terms of what you might do just to help make things pass a little bit. So after Kean walks away, he ends up at the bar that we mentioned before. And like Jeff said, Divya is working there that night. And they do a post-mortem on the wonky dinner and Hudson's response to it and Kean's response to that, all while Divya keeps the shots coming. And during their discussion, they come to the conclusion that when it comes to Hudson, it will always boil down to what will my family think? Keen takes a cab to Hudson's brownstone and confronts him just as Hudson is getting out of the shower. No doubt smelling like pine woodsy body wash. Keen is able to keep, well, most of his wits about him, with Hudson looking all delectable, and make sure that he understands that their breakup left him genuinely broken. Hudson apologizes. And mentions that Randall, the guy from Spotlight, is actually going to be at the wedding in Georgia. Because what's better than an introduction that Hudson promised earlier? How about some real FaceTime with the man he wants to work for? Kian says he'll think about it, which essentially means yes. (laughs) This whole thing at the Brownstone, it just highlights where these two are. And the back and forth so much. They want to get back together so badly. Put the wedding aside put aside meeting the guy from Spotlight. They want to get back together, but they also want it to be different than it was because they both kind of know that it was messed up. And it's just amazing to watch these two really fight. I mean, Kean digs in over even about being called K. I brought that up jokingly earlier that only his boyfriends get to call him K and Hudson kind of falls back into that as they've had these initial discussions. And Kean goes off on him about that here and making sure that he uses his full name. And it all comes swirling down to the fact that as Kean is storming out, we again get this great pop culture reference because he says it's something like from The Notebook or from a Nicholas Sparks book where he just turns around and screams, I'm so over you, Hudson Rivers, don't you forget it. And then drenched, he slips back into a cab so that he can get away from there. I also really like feel bad for any Uber driver that Kian gets into a car with. He actually manages to have protracted discussions a couple of times with Uber drivers about what he should do when he arrives at his destination. Trying to get a little instant therapy, perhaps, from his driver. He racks up bills <laughs> doing this <laughs> because he doesn't exit the car fast enough. It's really interesting. And kind of fun how he'll delay himself getting into situations that he knows are going to be uncomfortable. Jamal does the brotherly thing and drives Kean to the airport, where Kean finds Hudson in the very well-appointed luxury airport lounge, where oddly, he's reading an online article about his own father and how he built the family empire. Because as we said before, Hudson may have the money and the looks, but when it comes to his relationship with his parents, I mean, it's clear that he's really counting on this visit to impress them and live up to their impossible expectations. Watching Kian be out of place as he feels in the fancy airport lounge and things like that is also very interesting. The way that he views where he thinks he should be in the world. Sometimes I really want him to have more confidence than that. But then you also see through other various things why he 
doesn't have that confidence. And it's something that I think as much as Hudson bristles at some of what his family has, I think Kean gets a little more self-confidence just being around Hudson, who takes up his space and always has that confidence about him that he does belong in whatever space he's in. We saw it a little bit in the clothing store when they were doing their shopping. We see it again here at the airport. It's a really interesting balance between these two in, in this kind of situation. Once they're in flight, not even the super plush luxury of first class can calm Kean's jitters about flying in general, and some heavy turbulence specifically. To take his mind off of it, Hudson asks why, since Keen has been unemployed for a while now, he hasn't given up on journalism and tried something else. And the answer? It's about an uncle who was supportive long ago, and Keen's need for the story of why people make the choices that they do. It's during this conversation that Hudson warns him that getting involved with Randall is a bad idea, to which Keen encounters that he doesn't have the same opportunities Hudson does. Like Jeff mentioned earlier, they're from two different worlds. Randall just might be a bad guy, but the introduction and opportunity to land his dream job at Spotlight is a shot he's going to take, because chances like that don't come around for people like him. The whole passage, talking about the uncle, really moved me. Getting that story, hearing how it affected him like it did, it was really a deep moment, one of the deeper moments that we've had in this first section of the book. It really seeks, I think, to more ground some of the more rom com aspects that we have here. Very real moments like this. But I also have to point out one moment of humor. You mentioned that Kean doesn't like to fly. He refers to what keeps planes in the air as devil's magic. <laughs> I thought was so entertaining that despite everything he talks about, he very much believes in science, but the whole plane thing is just something that he cannot get behind. As Kosoko does, the whole lead up to actually being in Atlanta. We know so much about Hudson and Kean before they arrive for the wedding that it informs so well everything else that's just about to happen. We've got so much great character stuff going on here. It just It's such a rich book. It's one of the things that I loved about it so much. I feel like I know these characters so well. Once on the ground and in the limo on the way to the estate, Kean asks a personal question of Hudson. Why didn't he go into the family business? And if not that, just create his own entrepreneurial opportunity. For Hudson, once he realized that his family's money, power, and prestige was like a wall, no one was going to be honest or real with him, not in any genuine way, which made him want to know the why of human behavior, hence his interest in psychology. Which I think is interesting in this particular section of the book. We're learning a little bit more about our heroes and what drives them to do what they do. And while on the surface, Hudson and Kean may seem like they're from two different worlds, deep down, I think what drives each of them is a curiosity, why people do what they do. So while the two of them are very different people, they're also the same in a lot of fundamental ways. There's a passage that Hudson makes in here where he says, I like psychology because it helps me understand people. Journalism helps investigate how things happen, and psychology explains why they happen. And I'm interested in the why. I think that right there actually kind of says why these two work so well together, because they're both driving towards some of the same answers to questions. They just approach it from a different way, from the investigative and the desire to understand the how from one side and the why from the other. I came back to this idea a lot as they kind of played out what was happening. Part of me almost thinks that's why they keep driving themselves back together again, because there is that connection there through what they're actually wanting to do with their life. I don't know. I might be thinking too much about it, but I kept kind of <laughs> circling back to that in this. I also found it a little interesting that Hudson doesn't like being lied to. He knows he is lied to a lot and he doesn't know who to trust. And yet he is perpetuating or he thinks he's perpetuating this big lie to his family in general. So I thought it was interesting that that whole trust thing is there, but yet he's willing to try to pull one over on his family too. I wasn't too sure what to make of that. He should, he should probably psychoanalyze himself to figure that part out because <laughs> I'm not qualified to do that. So to get into character, they are supposed to be boyfriends after all. They kiss and things heat up really quickly. But then the limo arrives at the house where Hudson and his sister Olivia who is considered the golden child, they immediately start fighting. <laughs> and these two, they go at it. Oh boy. <laughs> Kean, thankfully, he intervenes, and the siblings reluctantly step back. 
Hudson's obvious discomfort at being back home has Kean sensing that it might be something more than I just I don't like my parents. This is the first time that Kean's been to this house, despite the past relationship. He puts seeing through the house through the lens of house hunters. <laughs> because as he puts it, he and his mom have seen every episode, both domestic and international. So he's able to like project the price tag onto <laughs> Just another pop culture reference that I adored, because who doesn't like to watch House Hunters? Ooh, boy. Hudson and Olivia. Mm. There's so much there. It was part like watching Dynasty. It was part watching any other like 80s big soap opera with the siblings who don't like each other. Yeah, that's big. And they, they're fiery a lot. I thought it was a complete overreaction <laughs> to a, a kiss in front of the house. She was all like, you were doing it in front of the house, in front of everyone. And of course, the question is, who exactly is everyone? Because it's only Olivia standing here in the driveway at the moment. She's very dramatic. She's very forceful. She she knows what she wants, and she is going to make sure that things go in the direction that she wants them to go. And she's already, I think, a little suspicious of what these two are up to. This is a fun dynamic to watch play out over the rest of the wedding weekend. When the parents and guests arrive for the wedding party cocktail mixer, Kean can't help but feel he's living the black southern version of crazy rich Asians. But instead of schmoozing with the obscenely rich and famous, Kean and Hudson find themselves entertaining the youngest party guests. Hudson plucking out renditions of Baby Shark on his guitar. It's such a cute moment. It's like, I don't want to deal with the adults anymore. We're going to go over here and entertain the kids. Probably the same room I might have ended up in if I were stuck at this event. It's nice seeing Hudson in this setting, really probably being more himself than he actually can be usually in his parents' house. Yeah, as you said before, we're just learning so much more about the characters now that we put them into this setting. As the family gathers for the, essentially it's a performance of a high-class celebration, Olivia sits down next to Hudson and Kean. They discuss business, and Kean impresses with his thoughts and pragmatic opinions on the morality and responsibility of a business as large as the Rivers and Valleys brand. It's here also that Kean muses on Southern charm, the ability to say something without saying anything at all. And when the rich do it, it's especially vapid and meaningless. I don't know about you, but what Kean is describing is my own personal horror show. Southern charm, as I know and have experienced it, is anything but. Sweet to your face and are happy to stab you in the back at the same time. I spent 15 years in the South. I worked for a time as a journalist, no less, <laughs> for a Southern-based publishing company. And while the family who ran the company were actually some of my very favorite people, no joke, there were others in the company executive ranks who... I wouldn't really trust with anything. They will tell you one thing and mean something else and have ulterior motives. And yeah, this is a, it made me cringe a little bit, bringing back some of the Southern things that I experienced that I know still go on very easily today. It's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 all, it's all too real. It's like a freaking horror show. <laughs> <laughs> and it's at this point that Hudson's grandmother, Joanna, plops herself down right next to Kean. I love this woman. <laughs> I really do. We just disparage Southern culture a little bit. Sorry for those of you who don't fit that. We know there are good Southern people there. But Joanna, oh, God bless her. I loved her. Yeah, the kind of Southern matriarch who has zero fucks to give. Yes. <laughs> who will not put up with she's, the Southernness of it all. <laughs> she's got the age and experience and the power to give zero fucks. Exactly. That's the point. She would be played by Diane Carroll in my book. <laughs> exactly. Joanna decides that they're going to take their conversation outside, and she and Kean transition their conversation out into the sticky southern summer air, and they talk of capitalistic systems of oppression in the most genteel way possible, and how the expansive Rivers family estate was built atop a bulldozed plantation. And it's here that Joanna gets to the point and asks if he has feelings for her grandson. Kean says he doesn't know, and she says, well, he'll figure it out in time. Kean needs more people like Joanna in his life. She's a different version of Divya and comes at things from a different point of view and a different background because, like you said, she's got the age and the wisdom and the experience here. But I loved how her version of Southern played here, too. She was initially like, I'm not going to talk first, so we can sit here in silence or you can start. 
She had a very distinct way that she wanted the conversation to go. But she also admitted in the middle of it, too, that the way that Kian interacted with Olivia made him someone that Joanna wanted to talk to. The whole conversation was just, it gives you a different look at the Rivers family through the lens of this woman. I loved it. I really wanted her to come back and play more of a role later on. But this moment, oh, so good. You can see so well here that Kosoko knows exactly what he's writing. He knows who these people are. And he just brings so much authenticity to the page that you just feel it like you're a fly on the wall everywhere that Kian and Hudson go. That night, Hudson and Kian have a heavily flirtatious almost moment, which is key in any good rom-com, before Hudson decides he wants to surprise Kian and whisks him away in a golf cart over the manicured lawn, through the forest, to a private moonlit lake. And it's here that Hudson asks what he's been wondering since, well, I assume since forever, is there a real chance for the two of them again? And like before, Kian doesn't have an answer to that question. But they do get hot and heavy kissing up against a tree. The moment has the possibility for more, but this isn't how Hudson wants their first time at a second chance to go down. So they head back to the house. I love this outdoor moment after so much either being cooped up in the city in Boston or being cooped up at this house, this time at the lake, and we get more insight into Hudson who really likes this lake. He'll come here, he'll think, he'll kind of like try to put the world in perspective here. He has a whole thing about the ducks trusting you because ducks can be really freaking mean uh, if you want them to. You know, If you screw around with the ducks, they will come after you. And then finally, he boiled it down to step one was gaining grandmother's admiration, which, of course, Kean did. Step two is then getting the ducks to trust you. And then step three is the whole profit. So, yeah, the lake was a nice, probably one of the calmest moments, I'd say, that Hudson and Kean have had to the book so far because it's just them they've kind of gotten past the first big hurdle of will you be my fake boyfriend will you come do this thing with me and now they're kind of having the breather after essentially all the big stuff that has happened so far it was a nice little (sighs) take a breath moment in the book and i loved it so once they're back at the house they decide to share the same bed and discuss just for clarity's sake that there's nothing fake about what they're feeling they have forced proximity (laughs) In a ginormous mansion, because, of course, they must be in the same room to pull off this act. And so, yeah, might as well both sleep in that bed. Yeah, it's not fake. They're boyfriends. It's, <laughs> it's the real deal, and they fall asleep in each other's arms. So, you're 100% right. They are boyfriends, because this is where Kean finally tells Hudson that he can call him Kay. That's where they've gotten back to, that now he can use that term of endearment. They do have to take a moment here, as they were situating how they were going to be in this bed. Kian has a whole moment on spooning, which I thought was hilarious. Never really understood the attraction of spooning. One person always ends up with a dead arm, usually the same person who ends up suffocating in another person's hair. And for the spooned, it feels like you're in a straitjacket made of human flesh, which is honestly (laughs) a terrifying thought. It's like, well, there you go. (laughs) So yeah, I would say that Lake had big healing powers on them, especially Kian, if he's willing to allow being called Kay again. In the morning, Kian feels like a Disney princess. And has a whole thing about how important it is that you know who your Disney princess is, saying that it's more important than your sun sign, your Harry Potter house, or even your avatar bending style. I don't know. Did you think he was an Ariel? I thought he was more of a bell, but that's just me. <laughs> Well, if we're talking fish out of water, surrounded by wealth and luxury, I think either of those two princess styles would fit. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So our two heroes have gone from combative and constantly arguing to something far more relaxed and comfortable. It's so cute. And this renewed relationship dynamic means that Kian can kid around with his rich southern prince before they go out and take a trip past the imposing wrought iron gates of the Rivers and Valleys Brewing Company headquarters. I know I keep calling out the pop culture here because I was so enamored by it. In the span of just a few paragraphs, we managed to use Scooby-Doo, Twilight, and Wicked all mixed up together because he says that the iron gates of Rivers and Valley Brewing Company Loom in front of me like the gates of a castle the Scooby gang would have to infiltrate. But beyond the Iron Gates, you could see a beautiful modern building, more like where the Cullens lived in Forks. 
And as those gates push open, he actually kind of sings one short day in the Emerald City as they're going in to the compound. Absolutely hilarious. And just one of the things that made me adore this book so much. Just wrapping up so many things all in one nice little pop culture bundle of references. While on a private Hudson guided tour of the facility, they run into Olivia, who is giving a tour to Nathaniel and Danny. Nathaniel is the cousin and Danny is the bride-to-be. Olivia and Hudson are immediately combative, which I, frankly just seems to be their natural state. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, Kean's hardly been around them and he's already saying that they'd be an allegory for some great war. We're taught in high school. Neither of them willing to back down and they're inching closer to mutually assured destruction. <laughs> Eventually, the two of them leave the group to go talk family business. Nate goes off to take a business call leaving Danny and Kean to hang out over beers, which they bought at the public gift shop. They talk family dynamics. Like, why exactly is Danny marrying Nate? She decides to be straightforward and tells him that they were on again, off again during college, with no real intention of settling down together. But when her parents caught them hooking up and convinced them they were a perfect match, socially at least, Kean seems kind of shocked at this revelation. But Danny is quietly resigned that she merely likes the perfectly nice guy who will become her husband in the next few days. This made me sad because I always, it's the romantic in me. I always want people to marry for love. But Danny, oh, I just wanted to hug her and say, no, don't do it. She actually says to Kian, I think happiness is something that Americans focus on too much. It's more important to be secure. Is that what you think? And, and then Kian very pointedly asks, is that what you think or what your parents think? And Danny gives that a consideration and comes back with, does it matter? I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Somebody needs to write Danny a good romance novel. <laughs> Let her find her one true person. This is the beginning of her Hallmark movie right here where she realizes she's with the wrong person and she's going to go find the right one in some other story. I'm just convinced of it. Hudson and Kean spend the next day doing all the touristy things Atlanta has to offer, as well as go on another obscenely expensive shopping trip. The guy does like to shop. <laughs> and he does it well. But Kean is mentally a million miles away, thinking about Danny settling and what he and Hudson mean to one another. Hudson knows Kean has got something on his mind and wants to know what he can do to make it better. And they end up getting very hot and heavy in the Jeep in the carport of the house. Talk about wondering who might see what. Olivia would blow her mind <laughs> if she knew that that was happening anywhere in the vicinity of the house. Kean doesn't want their first time together again to be in a car. So they rush inside the house, past all the guests there for the rehearsal dinner. Kean is momentarily distracted by all the celebrities. He's like, oh my God, is that Rachel Maddow? <laughs> they find an empty bathroom. Is that better than a car? I don't know. It's good enough. It's marginally better than a car. <laughs> Hudson gets down on his knees and thoroughly blows Kean's mind and tells him that he's in this because he's in love and can't wait until they're both on the same page. Mm-hmm. He essentially says here that he will wait and do what it takes to get Kean back into the spot where he can also say, I love you. It's a very sweet moment. After this day of all this activity, I mean, it kind of tracks back to even being at the brewery. They're getting out away from the house, mostly away from the family and looking to reconnect a little bit. And it that doesn't always go well because Kean knows that there's something on Hudson's mind and everything, but... Just that progression of being out and doing things together and doing coupley things. Touristy things are very coupley things. So, yeah, this whole sequence, I really liked it, even as it was interspersed with other things going on. And boy, are we headed into the last act here. So much is about to happen. Hang on to your hats here. As they're stepping out of the bathroom together, they run right into Randall Clements. The guy Kean has come all the way to Atlanta to schmooze with. Hudson, rather expertly, diffuses the awkwardness with his patented charm and introduces Kean to Randall, telling him what a great journalist he is and how he's the perfect fit for Spotlight. Kean immediately gets an off-putting vibe from this guy, but since he's wanted this job forever, he goes to talk privately with Randall. They go to an empty library slash study, which mansions like this seem to have an infinite number of. If you've got the space, have a library. <laughs> we would do that. We would stock every room we could with books. <laughs> Kean immediately says something awkward, which is not ideal when you're trying to impress the media mogul of the company you want to work for. Sometimes Kean can talk so well, and then other times he just trips over himself completely. But his awkwardness is nothing compared to Randall, who is a classist, racist sleazeball 
who is only interested in a fast hookup and bending Kean over a nearby desk for the job. Truly overwhelmed by how brazen he is, Kean pushes Randall off, the commotion bringing in several people, including Hudson, who are just outside the room. When Hudson realizes what has happened, he punches Randall, leading to an all-out brawl between the two of them. The two of them were once former college friends, but there was definitely bad blood between them, and this is the last straw for Hudson. I didn't realize earlier when Hudson was warning Kean, although it was a very light warning at the time, at least the way that I read it, that Randall was really not a good guy. I think Kean blew it off a lot like I did because he's so obsessed with working at Spotlight. And so even that foreshadowing moment that happened, I never imagined it would get like this with the come on that Randall did. The only reason it comes to a stop is because Hudson dad puts a stop to it, kicking Randall out. I cheered for Hudson because he immediately stepped in and there was never a doubt in his mind that Kean was telling the truth about the situation. He took care of Randall and then dad also came in and was like, this is enough and Randall, you need to leave and you don't get to come to the wedding and you just need to go. There was never any like, well, did it really happen? What happened? What was all this? Everybody rallied around and did immediately the right things. It was nice to see that kind of definitiveness happen there in a really terrible situation. I really felt for Kean to kind of watch his dreams fall apart right there at that time because this guy was such a douche. A friend of the family helps Hudson get patched up. And obviously no longer in a party mood, he and Kean head up to Hudson's room. During their fight, Randall was goading Hudson on. And it's here he explains something Randall said. In high school... Hudson drank a lot, so much that on prom night, he drove his car through someone's garage door. His parents, with their money and power, made the incident disappear, and he sometimes thinks about that. As a young black man in an accident like that, his life could have gone down a very different road, but thanks to his parents, it didn't. They then paid for his rehab. And he doesn't express it explicitly, but Hudson's feelings about not being a part of the family business are in part due to being in recovery. Learning about this, everything that his family did, it really made me wonder why Olivia is such a terrible person to him. For stepping away from the company, for doing something else, because certainly being around alcohol all the time would be a challenge for him. And Kean even acknowledges that he's even more impressed because of what he's just learned, that Hudson is able to battle back his demons as well as he has over these six years. It cast Olivia in a, in a much more harsh light for me and, and what she does. But this whole thing that's gone down at the party has just drawn them so much closer together. I mean, it, it's terrible what happened with Randall, but it also helped Hudson, I think, finally unlock everything that he had to unlock with Kean to be able to move forward again. It's interesting how Kosoko built these scenes to get to the place where this big revelation could happen and let these two men be their authentic selves with each other because now Hudson doesn't have to carry this anymore. It was just a really interesting play out of the scenes and I liked it a whole bunch. At this point, after all that they've been through this weekend, they can't hold back any longer and fall into bed. The sex is both familiar and brand new. There is a deeper bond now. They know each other even better and love one another more than ever. It's so swoony. Even between these two, there's also so much consent talk because they haven't done things in so long together. I loved every minute of this. It was sweet. It was sexy. It was hot. It was steamy. <sighs> yeah, the book's been leading up to this point because they've had their makeouts and they've had the blowjobs, but this was full out making love and I was just loving it. And after a night of making sweet, sweet love over and over and over again... <laughs> How did they even have the energy to get up to go to a wedding? I don't know. I, I do not know. Somehow they managed to get up the next morning and get dressed for the big wedding. It is big and it is fancy. I was glad they at least momentarily talked about blowing it off and just going away. They at least had the moment to think like, do we really need to go there? Maybe not. But they do show up, of course. The start of the ceremony goes as per usual. Nathan and then Danny walk down the aisle. The efficient says some words before getting to the vows. Nathan says I do on cue, but Danny takes an uncomfortably long beat before looking into the audience, locking eyes with Kean, and telling him he was right before turning to her almost groom and saying, I don't. Oops. And it's not one of those things 
where the bride's looking out into the audience and might be looking at anybody. It's painfully obvious to everybody there that she is looking at Kian. You cannot mistake that. Talk about uncomfortable. Yeah, boy, this is not good. Once Danny has made her dramatic exit, Olivia, seemingly on behalf of the entire Rivers family, confronts Kian and wants to know what the fuck that was about. <laughs> she knows he and Hudson broke up and that the introduction concerning the spotlight job was a condition for coming to the wedding. Was this some sort of sick game to him? A way to get back at Hudson and humiliate their family? Hudson, who has been watching the whole confrontation, wants answers as well. Just what exactly did he say to Danny that day at the brewery? Kian does his best to explain that she was having second thoughts, and he didn't think that that hesitancy was the best way to start married life. The two of them fight in front of what is left of the wedding guests. And Hudson wants to know, is Olivia right? Was this just some sort of sick revenge plot? Hudson may have stood up for him and had Kean's back yesterday, but that doesn't seem to be the case now. Kia needs to get out of there and get back home to Boston. God bless Divya for giving him some money and getting him a ticket. I was so disappointed in Hudson here. As much as his relationship with his family is fraught like it is, and as important as this wedding was to the family, I didn't really understand why he turned on Kian so badly there. I mean, I don't know that I would have necessarily expected him to totally like, stay, it's okay, it'll be fine. I was also surprised that he didn't give some pushback against Olivia, even though I know that's kind of his kryptonite, and that he didn't do something to defend a little bit more. I, I get why he did what he did, but I don't. <laughs> And I wanted him to behave differently, even at the same time, knowing that Kian really had to leave there. I wanted them to leave together. And that did not happen. It's a difficult scene, though. I mean, I don't hate the scene or anything. I just wanted it to play differently. I think at this point for Hudson and Kian, their new normal is still a little too new. Hudson could have stood by his man like you wanted, as sort of like a unified force, us against the world. But unfortunately, I think the shock of this particular situation means he's kind of fall on back on some bad habits. As we see in the first part of the book, the way they're kind of combative with one another. The shock of a runaway bride and this dishonor brought upon his family means that he very well may be in love with Kian, but his family is still his kryptonite and he's got some stuff to work through. Fair point. I can, I can live with that. Like I said, I didn't hate it, but it's like, uh, you know me, I don't like angst. And this was big ass angst sitting right there in the middle of everything. With the separation, so, yeah. Very fair points from you, as always. So it's at this point in our story, as we head towards our conclusion, that we get a time jump, which longtime listeners of the show may know is not exactly my favorite plot device. But since this particular book kind of walks that fine line between romance and romantic comedy, I'm willing to give the author a little bit of leeway. <laughs> at least it's a teeny tiny time jump in the grand scheme of time jumps. So two months later, back in Boston, Olivia is in town on business and interrupts Kean's brunch date to tell him that Hudson is in a bad place. He's become more involved in the family company. And Kean is all like, well, that doesn't sound like him. And she's like, yeah, that's exactly the point. I wasn't sure if she was more worried about her brother or more worried about losing some of the power that she had in the family business. I was not clear on her motives here, but at least she showed up. A lot of crazy stuff went down that wedding weekend, and there's enough blame for that crazy to go around. But Olivia suspects that Kean is still in love with her brother. She knows that he's still in love with Kean. He's at his Boston townhouse right now, preparing for a move to Atlanta. If Kean wants to salvage what they once had, getting over there sooner would be better than later. Really, for the first time here, we see a lot of what makes Olivia tick, and she spells it right out there for Kean. I don't care how people view me, so long as my family succeeds. Family is the most important thing, and Hudson, no matter our relationship, is my family. Unlike the rest of us, his success comes from his happiness. You make him happy, so in turn, I care about you. Plus, I think you'd make a pretty good brother-in-law. At least someone who can keep up with me, and that will be refreshing. <laughs> Go, Olivia. My entire opinion of you spun in those words. Because I can imagine Kian and her could have some pretty fiery conversations. As a complete side note, because this is a character we see like twice in this book, Kian's lunch partner is somebody 
that he sort of maybe dated before him and Hudson got back together. We see them a little bit on page and then we see them back here. This guy is so very sweet. He's totally into Kean going off to get his man back because he's a romantic too. I would like to see a book for this guy and see the happily ever after he could get because these glimpses of him make me want more. If this were going to be a series, that was his setup for the next book. <laughs> you, you are such a romantic to like the nth degree. You know that about me. <laughs> I didn't even bother mentioning Wallace. And yet for me, in my color-coded notes where pink is important things, Wallace got a pink note right there at the end of that chapter. <laughs> we had two very different viewpoints. I think he's irrelevant. You think he deserves his own series. <laughs> Not a series, just a book. In which we could see Kean and Hudson happily ever after in it because they're still friends through Divya. I, I could build the whole thing. At any rate, Hudson is surprised to find Kean on his doorstep, but there are no dramatic confrontations because this is what they both want. In the kitchen of his nearly empty packed up brownstone, they say their sorries and individually pledge to be there for one another. Good times are bad, ride or die, not perfect but pretty damn close. They practically have wedding vows here with some of what's said because Hudson says these things to Kean. One, I can promise you that every day I'll do my very best to show you that my life is better with you by my side. Two, I can promise you I'll continue to grow, to try new things, and to admit that I'm not always going to succeed, but that doesn't mean I won't stop trying. And most importantly, I can promise to put you and our relationship first to put us bettering each other and growing together first over everything else. It's practically wedding vows right there. And I, I just absolutely loved it. And on that note, an epilogue finds us another few months down the road. Kian is blissfully happy in his relationship with Hudson. And he is also finally happily employed at a new online magazine. He meets up with Hudson, his brother, and Divya for drinks after work. There's some booze and friendly banter. Happiness can be had in simple things like times with friends or your smoking hot boyfriend. And after some trials and tribulations, Kean and Hudson are very happy indeed. It was just a perfect little wrap up. The epilogue was just a nice little coda to the whole thing, essentially bringing all of our characters, at least all of our Boston characters, back together again. You could just imagine the camera pull back from the bar <laughs> as the screen fades to black if this was a motion picture. Yeah, I loved it. And I really loved everything about this book. It threw some nice curveballs in there. There were surprises for me, like the whole thing that went down with Randall. That was a surprise. The Runaway Bride was a surprise. Kosoko did a great job of like giving us the romance that we were expecting to have while also throwing in all these other things through the story into some different directions. And oh yeah, I loved it so much. I can't wait to see what he writes next. This was his first romance or in this case, a rom-com. And I look forward to seeing what else he does in this genre. And in case you missed it and want to learn more about Kosoko, this book and his next rom-com, you can go back and check out the interview we had with him in episode 372. Now, as we wrap up, we've got to mention the great audiobook for I'm So Not Over You. Timothy Bell Reese does an incredible job with Kean, Hudson, and the rest of the characters. In particular, I really loved how Timothy captured Kean's emotions throughout the story, the frustration, the second guesses, those rekindlings of certain romantic feelings that Kean was having. Timothy does such a spectacular job. And in fact, you'll be hearing a bit of that in just a moment. You're going to want to stick around because after the closing music, you can hear Timothy read the first chapter of I'm So Not Over You. Well, on that happy note, I think that'll do it for our spring book club selection. We hope that you've enjoyed our discussion of Kosoko Jackson's I'm So Not Over You. And if you haven't read it yet, we hope you will consider giving this book a try. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Now, coming up on Monday in episode 375, we've got a super big announcement that's going to kick off the month of May. Plus, we'll catch you up on what we've been reading recently. And of course, since it's the beginning of the month, we're going to tell you about the books that we're looking forward to as well. On behalf of Jeff and myself, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kind of stories we all love, the big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading.
Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Production assistance by Tyson Greenan. Original theme music by Daryl Banner. Now we're proud to present this audio excerpt, which is courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio from I'm So Not Over You by Kasoko Jackson, read by Timothy Bell Reese. One. The first rule and only rule of getting over your ex is not to answer your ex's messages. This can be done in many different ways, depending on the person. One, changes contact to read, do not answer. Two, block his number. Three, glue a horrible weave to your scalp so you look and act like a completely different person. Four, Restart your life as the owner of a mom-and-pop shop in rural Indiana and call it a day. That's one I'm particularly partial to. All of those are good and valid options. Do what you need to do, no judgment. And yet, somehow I found a way to break this simple rule. Not just break it, burst it wide open, shatter it, if you will. Because it's one thing to open a text and answer it, But it's another to decide to follow through with your ex's request. Look up bad idea on Google, and our helpful search engine will bring up, did you mean Key and Andrews' choices whenever they involve Hudson Rivers? My phone in my pocket vibrates once. My heart skips a beat. Maybe Hudson will cancel. Or maybe he'll realize the past three months apart have been a mistake, and he's going to confess he's still madly in love with me. Maybe. Nope, just Divya. Divya Evans, let the record show this is a horrible idea. Of course you'd say that, I mutter, forgetting she can't, you know, hear me. And she may be right, but that's not the point. When I got the text from Hudson a week ago, asking me to meet him at the watering hole, Divya was not amused. She scrunched her nose like she tasted something rancid in the air, which wasn't entirely off. Because to her, that's exactly what my relationship with Hudson was. Rancid. Which, sure, everyone says that about their ex because it makes them feel better. Key and Andrews. You've said that multiple times. Divya Evans. And yet you still refuse to listen. Remind me who is getting their law degree from Harvard? Key and Andrews. Wow, we went... 12 hours without you bringing up your Harvard degree? That's a new record. Divya Evans. But seriously, Kay, this is a bad idea. Closure is not as good as you think it is. As a lawyer in training, she should understand why I need to meet with Hudson, to process what happened, to close that chapter of my life, and to seal it shut with a glue made of truth. The memory of us breaking up is an open wound that never healed. It was a volatile separation, ending with me blocking him on every social media account possible and drinking myself into a stupor that made the two weeks after the breakup a blur. Maybe that's why Divi is a prosecutor and not a defense attorney. Another vibration. Another text. Divya Evans. I'm only a few blocks away if you need me. Kean Andrews. What are the chances of that happening, heart emoji? Pretty high, if I'm being honest. Divya has always been my rock, no matter what. Whether keeping me from embarrassing myself when I started crying in the club two weeks after my breakup, making sure I got my worthless self out of bed so I didn't lose my partial scholarship, or even finding some men with absolute dump truck asses to help me get over my head-over-heels obsession with Hudson, Divya has been that ride-or-die friend for me. So it's reasonable to assume that when I'm about to go through another major traumatizing Hudson experience, Divya Evans is the big guns I have on speed dial. What's that expression? Behind every great gay guy, there's a badass woman? Again, my phone pings. I pull it out of my pocket without looking, expecting another well-deserved quippy barb from Divya. But instead, an email stares back at me. From jobs at 
spotlight.com to kian.andrews at northeastern.edu subject reinvestigative journalism fellowship application Andrews Kian. I stare at the screen for so long, the colorful background of one of the many lighthouses on the North Carolina coast. I want to savor this moment. Hold on to it, keep it in its box, and put it on the top shelf somewhere out of the way. When I'm a famous journalist, with sources sliding into my DMs, begging me to write Pulitzer-winning stories, and I'm giving a guest lecture at Northeastern, they'll ask me, how did you get started in this competitive, cutthroat business? And I'll say, I got my first job at Spotlight. Will Spotlight be around 12 years from now? Probably not. News websites cannibalize themselves like bacteria. But it's the hottest place to work in journalism right now. Getting an investigative journalism fellowship there would change my life. It's like, do not pass go. Instead, get Park Place on your second turn. I tap the screen, bringing it back to life. Still, the email alert taunts me. Maybe it's an interview request. Maybe my pitch on the lack of education programs in Appalachia and how it's setting students back several grade levels that I spent all last week making really did impress them, and they're going to offer me a position sight unseen. That's not unreasonable. It happens to white guys all the time, and I have good, no, fucking great credentials. Like Divya says, they would be lucky to have me. But at the same time, as my journalism professor said, Journalists are a dime a dozen. Why should they pick you over anyone else? Which takes us back to Divya Evans and her exact words, You're a goddamn star, Kean Andrews. I wish I had the same level of confidence as her. I do a good job faking it when I'm around her. At least I think I do. But now? Alone in this cafe? doing something stupid like waiting for the boy who broke my heart, who was now seven minutes late, and staring at the email that could change my career? That confident facade is pushed far back into the closet, a place I haven't been since middle school. And I promised I'd never go back there again. Without overthinking it, I tap on the screen one more time and then enter my passcode before I can change my mind. One more tap, and the email fills the screen. Dear Mr. Andrews, thank you for your application for the Investigative Journalism Fellowship at Spotlight's Boston branch. At this time, we've decided... Shit. There's no need to read anymore. I could do a Control-F in my inbox, search for We've Decided, and bring up more than a dozen results. This is no different, despite how badly I want it to be different. I'm halfway through a text to Divya, informing her about the rejection from Spotlight, which will undoubtedly result in her replying with, Drinks on me tonight, when a baritone clearing of a throat behind me causes my fingers to stop. The deep voice cuts through the low, sensual tones of the Esperanza Spalding cover artist serenading us in the watering hole, even if it is as out of place as a black guy in Boston, a.k.a. me. But the voice is unmistakable. Even after three months of avoiding everything related to Hudson, the way he speaks effortlessly from the depths of his diaphragm still sends shivers down my spine. And the way his boyish grin plays off his chiseled jaw makes me want to melt. Kean? I do my best to turn slowly. Eagerness isn't a good look on anyone, especially around your ex when you're trying to act like you've moved on and are living your best single 20-something life. But my God, does he look nice. No, not nice. Hot. Hey, he says while smirking. Thanks for coming. There it is. That smile. The same lopsided grin that he gave me when we were paired together in freshman English to come up with a presentation of the bell jar. That smile he gave before our first kiss, after almost two years of mutual pining and will-they-won't-theys. That southern drawl. The same one that he would make more prominent when we lay in bed on Sunday morning because he knew what it did to me. 
put them together with a dash of traditionally accepted masculine features, a heaping of generational wealth, and you've got Hudson Rivers. I can already feel the weightlessness taking over. That sickening feeling that's akin to carbon monoxide poisoning. That's what Hudson is, a toxin that makes my best judgment and practical senses go haywire. He's dangerous. He's a mistake. He's going to hurt me. But he's so damn beautiful. And I miss him. I miss him so fucking much. Sure, no problem. Act relaxed. Act like you don't care. I wasn't doing anything anyway. I mean, I was in town. I mean, I was in the area. I mean, I was in the area because I live around here and I wasn't doing anything. Besides neurotically refreshing my email for a response from Spotlight and obviously looking like an idiot who can't put together a decent sentence to save my life. Divya and I went over this like a witness being prepped for a dangerous cross-examination multiple times. I have to hold my ground. I have to stay aloof. I have to stay in control. Thirty seconds in and I'm doing the exact opposite of that. Hudson just keeps that soft, charming grin on his face. It's like he knows my brain is short-circuiting. Because he does. He's seen me spiral like this before. Multiple times in college when I had too many assignments due and I didn't know where to start. And all those times he let me just talk myself out of the hole I created, smiling at me, maybe rubbing his thumbs over my knuckles in a soft, circular, soothing motion. There's none of those touches this time, though. And that smile, once cute and teasing, now seems like it's twisted into one of mockery. Even if I know that's not true, it's what my head and my heart thinks. Funny how when you break up with someone, everything you loved about them turns into everything you hate. I don't have much time, though, I add, to recover some dignity and take some power back. So whatever you want, let's get this over with you. Course, darling. I twitch, like his word is the trigger of a shock collar. He sits frozen, as though he whispered some command that put a spotlight on him and shakes his head. Sorry, habit. You call a lot of boys that now? That was uncalled for. That's not what I meant, and you know it, Kay. Kean, I remind him. Kay is reserved for boyfriends, and you, Hudson, are no longer my boyfriend. There, I did it. Advantage, Kean. The ball's back in my court. I've taken control of the narrative. Hudson, the smooth-talking Georgian, is not the one who has the power anymore. I... That's exactly why I called you, actually. Hudson avoids my gaze, fiddling with the sugar packet I ripped open and threw on the counter. He folds it into a nondescript shape, unfolds it and refolds it again like some poor man's origami experiment. I know that tick. He fiddles with things when he's nervous. Truly, actually worried. It's just so rare that I see it. It's about as common as finding a bad picture of Beyonce. Is it possible the great Hudson Rivers is more nervous than me? Screw it. He tosses the crumpled paper on the counter. Nothing good comes from beating around the bush. I'm pretty sure I'm the one who t I called you here because I want you to be my boyfriend. And at that moment, I've never been so happy to be black. Not only because black don't crack, but because the way the blood rushes to my cheeks would make me look like an overly ripe tomato. And there is nothing sexy about tomatoes. <laughs>